we said it for a long time and people laughed at us because we it looked like we were wrong based on market prices but i think at the end of the day right now we're being proven that it wasn't wrong this whole inflation episode was just a COVID aftershock that's all mm -hmm. it was you want to blame money printing you want to blame reckless government spending you want to blame zero interest rates for for 10 years or 15 years no no i mean that's not what's happening what would happen you know we had zero rates in 2009 2010 2011 2012 2013 2014 2015 2016 2017 2018 2019 2020 and 2021 and it didn't cause inflation What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing this week so far? Uh, good week so far. Big day tomorrow, Fed Day. By the time people hear this uh, podcast, the Fed will have already done their, done their shindig, and we'll, we'll know exactly how to respond to it. But a huge day tomorrow, huge day. Stocks are trading positively into that, and maybe that's a sign. Who knows? Let's talk about it in this podcast. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Well, Luke, like you said, it's Fed Day, or rather, it's the day before Fed Day. But again, mm -hmm. by the time our listeners hear this podcast, it will be Fed Day. So let's just say it's Fed Day. Uh, very important day for the markets. What is your outlook? What's the Fed going to do? And most importantly, how do you think stocks are going to react? Right. Yeah. So obviously, a lot has changed since the last time we heard from the Fed. I mean, it did. The timing, you could write a movie about this. It feels like it was a script in Hollywood. Uh, Powell goes and sounds super hawkish uh, two weeks ago in his last public statements before the meeting. That hawkish commentary uh, somewhat leads to the demise of Silicon Valley Bank, which somewhat leads to the demise of Signature Bank, and then somewhat leads to Credit Suisse and others, First Republic being in, in major trouble. And then the Fed goes into a blackout period. So Powell goes super hawkish, whole bunch of banks semi-fail, if not actually fail, Fed goes blackout. So we have no idea what the Fed is is really thinking about this situation. They haven't explicitly communicated it because they can't explicitly communicate it. So it's going to be a very interesting Fed meeting. The situation has changed dramatically since the last time they hiked interest rates and since the last time we got official commentary from them. So what are they going to do? Well, the consensus belief is that they're going to hike 25 basis points and then give some sort of signal that they may be done they're not going to come out and say we're done but this idea that you know for the past several meetings they've been saying we got a lot more room to way to go a lot more way to go a lot more way to go we're going to keep hiking keep hiking keep hiking now that rhetoric is going to probably shift to uh things have changed dramatically financial stability is is financial market stability is a bit bit at question we understand those risks we understand the cumulative uh lag effects of our of our hiking 
Um, and so while we aren't done with the job of fighting inflation, we feel that we are closer to being done than we were before. And so I think that shift in rhetoric is that's the consensus belief on the go along with 25 basis point hike and that that eventually leads to them pausing in May. So that's the consensus outlook. We get 25 on Wednesday. We get a dovish shift in language to a wait and see approach. And then we get a pause in May. Then after that, who knows if it's more if it's continued to stay a pause or, or cuts. But that's the consensus belief. And I think that's exactly what is going to happen. I do believe the Fed has to go 25 basis points tomorrow. They have to for credibility purposes and to not freak out the markets. If they don't hike rates, markets will freak out because then you start asking the question, what do they know that we don't? What are they seeing these bank balance sheets that's making them? Two weeks ago, they were thinking about 50. Now they're going to go zero. That's a panic. Going 50 to 25 step down, not a panic, especially since the last move was 25. So that's not really a panic move. But going from 50 to zero is a panic move. So they won't go zero. They're going to go 25 for credibility purposes. But then they're going to shift their language and they're going to uh, signal that they're probably done. They're going to do that because, one, they pretty much are done. Inflation is collapsing like a stone. We've talked about it on this podcast so many times before. A lot of people have said, Luke, what the heck are you smoking? Thinking inflation is still hot. But I've been saying, hey, leading indicators are showing is going to rapidly decelerate. And it is indeed now rapidly decelerating. If you thought the February reports were cool, wait till we get the March reports. Inflation is falling like a rock in March. It is ridiculous. Look at every leading indicator. So all the, the federal districts, right, the New York Fed, Philly Fed, Dallas Fed, Kansas City Fed, they conduct surveys of businesses in their respective districts. And they ask those businesses, okay, how are your prices trending? The prices you pay for goods, the prices you're receiving for goods. Across all those industries, the prices paid index and the prices received index, in all of these surveys, the KC Fed Manufacturing, KC Fed Services, Dallas Fed Manufacturing, Dallas Fed Services, Philly Fed Services, Philly Fed Manufacturing, New York Fed Services, New York Fed, across all those surveys for March, it is a straight line cliff on prices. Prices have collapsed here in March. Look at the, the uh, New York Fed's Global Supply Chain Pressure Index. It is completely normalized to 2019 levels. Supply chain pressures globally are now gone. The COVID lockdowns that threw everything awry, completely in the rearview mirror. Look at Trueflation data, one of my favorite metrics for real-time inflation data. Go to Trueflation.com. Look at that. A crash in March. Inflation has gone 4.2, 4 points, crashing significantly in March, more so than it did in February and January. Go look at um, the Cleveland Fed's Nowcast, which is a their in, inflation forecasting tool for CPI in the current period. They are predicting, last I checked, and I checked about two days ago, they're predicting inflation to fall 100 basis points in March. That would be the largest drop in of any month in this disinflation cycle. So no matter where you look, inflation is rolling over significantly here in March. Oil, oil dropped to 65. Inflation is rolling over significantly here in March. And that's before we get the after effects, the aftershock effects of the banking crisis. The banking crisis happened in early March. Banks sort of reacted to it, but their reaction right now is to patch up their own systems. 
their reaction in April and May and June is going to be to tighten the crap out of their lending standards. So all of a sudden, money's going to get tight. You're going to get tight. It's going to be tough to get credit, tough to get capital. And that is going to significantly hamper business and consumer spending going into the summer. So inflation's falling like a rock here in March, and it's going to fall even faster April, May, and June. The Fed has won its fight against inflation. They have succeeded. So they can afford to stop. Number two is that they kind of need to stop to preserve the financial system, to preserve the financial markets. We've talked about this before. What the Fed is doing is they have a hammer and they're chipping away. And as a result of them chipping away, cracks are now starting to form. Let's say they're chipping away at, at a rock. Cracks are now starting to form in the rock. And yes, through other measures like emergency funding and backing up depositors, that's why stocks are rallying today on Tuesday because Janet Yellen, U.S. Treasury Secretary, came out and said we're going to back – we're willing to. We may back all deposits at all banks above $250,000 if you know systemic risks start to emerge. So they're patching up the cracks, but at the end of the day – the Fed is making the cracks with rate hikes, with this hammer. So unless the Fed stops hammering away, you can only patch up cracks so fast. The hammer is going to make more cracks than the, everybody else can patch up. The entire rock's going to break. They know that. They, they knew what they were doing. And so now they're like, okay, we're at a point where things are breaking. If we keep going farther, more things will break. Bigger things will break. We won't have the resources to patch that up. So we need to you know slow our roll here. So for those two reasons, I do believe the Fed is in a comfortable position to not declare victory against inflation, but say we've done enough to let rates stay where they are and do their thing. We've gone from zero to four and a half. We'll go from zero to 4.75, five. That's a huge run up in a year. Let them stay there. Let them work their way through the economy, have their lag effects. It'll kill inflation. Yeah, you'll restabilize economic confidence and financial market stability because you're not going to be continuing to hike rates. That's the best path forward. That's the Goldilocks. That's shooting down the fairway. And that's what they should do. And I believe it's what they will do because I have, as you know, <laughs> I've always had faith in this Fed. Mm -hmm. I have never, you know, everybody out there, not everybody, but a lot of people out there love to blame the Fed, love to blame Jerome Powell, love to blame these people like they're a bunch of idiot academics that don't know, you know, how to apply <laughs> stuff to the real world. And I, I, I think that's, I think those are silly arguments. These are very smart, very accomplished, very seasoned and experienced people. They know what they're doing and they've done a fabulous job. As I said last week, and I'll repeat it this week, they have basically beaten inflation without so much as scratching the labor market. Yes, the labor market and high tech is getting hit, but unemployment's at 3.6%. No other Fed in history has been able to do that. Take inflation down from 9% to 6%. It's probably going to fall down to 5% this month. So take inflation down from 9 to 5 without causing unemployment to go above 4% let alone 5%, 6%, 7%, 8%, which is where it normally does go. So the Fed's done a fabulous job, and I expect them to, to finish this masterful act with a great finale that's going to allow the economy to actually get a soft landing here. And as a result of that, most importantly to your point, I think stocks will rally. I think Powell can light a fire, which ignites a stock market rally into the summer. 
And that rally continues into the end of the year and into 2024, because I do think we are washing out the excesses of the pandemic, washing out the constraints of the pandemic from the from supply side. And we are now creating a foundation upon which you can have a prolonged economic expansion. And I believe 2023 will be the start of a multi-year economic expansion and multi-year secular bull market. So that's where I stand on it. And I think that now that we're coming to the end of this fight with inflation, coming to the end of this rate hike cycle, coming to more normal operating environment, that is going to allow stocks to go back to what they normally do, which is go up. Stocks have a long-term upward bias. And then final note here is that this is really just, you know, we've said it for a long time and people laughed at us because we it looked like we were wrong based on market prices. But I think at the end of the day, right now, we're being proven that it wasn't wrong. This whole inflation episode was just a COVID aftershock. That's all it was. You want to blame money printing. You want to blame reckless government spending. You want to blame zero interest rates for, for 10 years or 15 years. No, no. I mean- that's not what's happening. What, what happened, you know, we had zero rates in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021. And it didn't cause inflation. We had government printing money through that entire period, and it didn't cause inflation. In fact, in the middle of all that, 2014, 2015, 2016, we were about to get massive deflation, significant deflation because commodity prices were collapsing. You couldn't stimulate demand with all that money. And this goes to the point that it doesn't matter if you print a bunch of money. What matters is the velocity of money, M2 velocity. It matters how quickly people are spending that money. All the money they got printed after 08 went into bank accounts and sat in bank accounts to back them up, to shore them up. If the Fed starts printing money right now, which they are printing money right now to help out banks, that's what they're doing it for, though. They're not giving money to people and saying, go and spend it like crazy. They're giving it to banks to shore up bank accounts. People don't lose their savings. That's not stimulative um, to inflation. That's not inflationary. So all this money printing, that's not why inflation happened. That money printing kept things alive, kept things from collapsing, didn't cause inflation. What mm. caused inflation? Supply chains broke. Supply chains absolutely broke in 2020. And then there was a sporadic reopening. So the real problem was that US, the Western world, opened up real fast. The Eastern world did not. The Eastern world is the hub of supply. The Western world is a hub of demand. So we all went into lockdown and then the Western world opened up like, you know, super fast. Eastern world did not. So you had a massive supply demand imbalance. Demand was back to normal. Supply was way out of whack, way not normal. That's what caused inflation. But now demand has come back in a little bit. A little part of this is where the stimulus checks. That was a unique twist in 2020, 2021 that we didn't have in the 2010s. That's no longer happening either. So demand has come back in. Supply is back normal. We've normalized the, the supply-demand dynamics here. That means inflation is going to get back to normal very, very quickly and going to stay at normal for a long time. This is not your grandpa's stock market. Mm. This is their, their, their economy. This is not the 1970s. It is just not that. If oil does get too high, oil goes to 180, guess what? Investments into in solar and all that stuff is going to go bananas. We have alternatives. We have artificial intelligence to automate. If labor, if labor costs do really get that that high, if wage pressures are that that sticky, then companies just can automate out a bunch of that work with AI and software. There are alternatives, cost-cutting, cost cost-efficient alternatives, time-efficient alternatives that we can use to beat inflation today uh, if we get to that point, if we need to get to that point. So point being – I think the Fed has 
really beaten inflation. Mm. They're not going to declare victory because declaring victory prematurely has a historical precedent of being, you know, you look, you look like a fool. So they're not mm. going to do that. But they will slow their roll, hike mm. 25, signal that they might stop, eventually stop. And that's going to cause inflation is going to keep falling. Economy is going to restabilize. Rates are going to come down. Yields are going to come down. And you're going to get a big boom in risk assets in, in markets. That's why cryptos are rallying. This is why housing stocks are rallying. This is why tech stocks are rallying. You're seeing a return of what worked in the 2010s. That's mm-hmm. what's happening in 2023. Uh, and meanwhile, energy stocks are getting crushed in 2020, uh, 2023. Everything that worked in 22 is not working in 23. So it feels like we're getting a return to the 2010s era here in 2023. And I think that's going to be the norm for the 2020s. So. That's my very <laughs> long-winded spill on on the uh, on the Fed right now. <laughs> um, I do want to touch base on on what you're calling the Fed's finale. They're going to uh, you know do the 25 bips, and then you say that they're going to start to signal that they're done. What are the signals that you, again? You're, they're not going to say we're done, we're done, we're done. Oh. But what are the signals that we should be looking for that indicate that they are done? Yeah. So the, I mean, it, it, you're right. Powell cannot come out and explicitly say we are done with rate hikes because then the markets would go absolutely crazy and like that would risk reinflation like that. He's not going to do that. He can't do that. What he will do. So what you got to look for is the, the the cues he gives to what they may do next before the language has been or the language has been. We are not done. We have a long way to go. Inflation remains too high. We have not made enough progress against inflation. That's been the sort of – those have been the party lines of the Fed over the past six, seven, eight, nine months. I think those will now start to shift and those are the signals you got to look for. I think we have not done enough against inflation turns into we have done enough to see that inflation is coming down and we are confident that it can continue to come down. Um, the we have a ways to go will switch to – we are now seeing the cumulative lag effects of our hiking and believe that these effects are, are deflationary or disinflationary in nature and, and therefore are, are comfortable with, with where rates are. Though we need to go higher to get restrictive turns into, given recent developments, we're probably already in restrictive territory. So you're going to get these language shifts on key commentary pieces that have been you know, they haven't switched from them, deviated from them in nine months. I think they now deviate from them in March uh, because of recent developments and because inflation is, is falling over. So I think that deviation is what is going what's what the market's looking for. And if we get that is what will cause the market to to rally. OK, um, so listening to your outlook for Fed Day, it seems to segue perfectly into a discussion about a really interesting chart you showed your subscribers this week. Uh, the title of the chart is Learn to Appreciate a Good Old Bank Crisis. It's maybe right. the best chart I've seen from you all year. Can you explain that chart and how it ties in with the Fed? Yeah, so a lot of people are freaking out right now about the bank failures. And it's like, oh, gosh, banks are failing. Economy, you know, banks are the heartbeat of the economy, the centerpiece of the economy. If they're failing, that can't say good things about the economy. Uh, sell stocks, get out of the markets, take cover, you know, hold or, uh, save, save everything you can. Um, and that makes sense. Ostensibly, that, that is the implication. But actually, you know, according to my research, the – 
the failure of banks. Bank failures are the ultimate contrarian buy signal. When you get <laughs> major bank failures, that's when bear markets end and bull markets start. And the reason for that is because bank, banks are always the last domino to fall. It, it, it's kind of like we talked about layoffs, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as unemployment spikes like crazy, that's usually a good time to buy because the last thing to go is the labor market. People hold on to employees. They hold on to employees. And finally, at the very end, when it looks like the world is ending, they got to start firing like crazy. And that is, that, that's a bottoming sign. Well, that's what bank failures are. Bank failures are a bottoming sign. Banks hold on, hold on, hold on. And then eventually, because what causes bank failures? Bank runs, panic, uh, a market panic. That's what causes bank runs. And so when you get that, you get the bank run and the bank fails. That's usually a bottoming sign. Not to mention the other side of the coin is that, well, when a bank fails, rescue plans emerge. So usually when banks fail is when the government steps in and starts rescuing things. When the government steps in and starts rescuing things, stocks start to get better. The economy starts to recover. Before you get better, you got to get sick. A bank failure is the economy getting really sick. So the doctors, a.k.a. the government, comes to the rescue with a bunch of medicine. And that helps the markets and the economy get better. So that's why bank failures are historically actually very, 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 very bullish. The wrote down the names here because I didn't even know about some of these bank failures. I was doing my research. October 1974, Franklin National Bank, very big regional bank, went under. That was the end of that bear market, 1974, 75. That 1974 is when inflation was going like crazy and the economy was collapsing, Fed was hiking rates. Boom, you had the big bank failure in October 1974, stocks bottom in December of 74, and then we rallied like crazy in 75. So that was the end of that bear market was the Franklin National Bank failure. Next bank, big bank failure was May 1984, Continental Illinois. Huge bank at the time, and it went under. That was the end of that bear market. May 1984, stocks surged through the rest of 1984 and into 1985. Huge rally. 1988, that's when the savings and loan crisis got really, 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 really big. And it kind of crescendoed in, or the domino started to fall in the summer of 1988. 1987, we had um, Black Monday, right? We had that huge stock market crash. Fallout from that destabilized banks by the summer. Six months later, a lot of them were going under. So you had First Republic go under in July 29, 1988. You had American Savings and Loan, September 1988. So that summer of 1988, you had a bunch of bank failures. Well, guess what? That's when the market was bottoming after Black Monday, and we got a massive rally in the back half of 88, massive rally in 89 in stocks. So that was the end of that bear market, the beginning of the next bull market. Bank failures typically always, or typically signify the end of bear markets and start of bull markets. The only exception is the great financial crisis. Washington Mutual went under in summer of 2008. Lehman went under in, uh, no, wait, sorry, IndyMac went under in summer of 2008. Then Lehman Brothers and WAMU went under in September 2008. That catalyzed a huge stock market crash. We didn't bottom until March 09 at much lower levels. So bank failures almost always signify the end of bear markets and bull markets with one exception in U.S. history, and that's the great financial crisis of 2008. So why the difference? Well, in 2008, 2009, the bank failures were huge. Lehman Brothers was $700 billion in assets. WAMU was $300, $400 billion in assets. IndyMac was, was another very, uh, very big financial institution at the time. So when you sum up all the assets of the banks that failed in 2008 and 2009, well, actually just 2008, 
that equated to about 7.5% of U.S. GDP. That's a huge number. For context, 1988 bank crisis, 1984 bank crisis, 1974 bank crisis, those all were about 1% to 2% of GDP. The assets of the banks failed in those bank crises were about 1% to 2% of GDP. Great financial crisis was at 7.5%. So that's the difference. That's why the other bank crises were bear market enders and bull market starters. But the GFC was the beginning of a big crash. The size, size matters. Here we are in 2023. You add up all the the banks that failed and we're at 1.5% of GDP. Let's say First Republic fails. Then you're at 2.2, 2 2.3% of GDP. So you're trending. Where we're trending right now is a bank crisis of magnitude similar to 1974, 1984, 1988, and well below the magnitude we saw in 2008, which means that the outcome here should not be stock market crash like we saw in GFC, but rather bear market ending and bull market beginning like we saw in 88, 84, and 74. So learn to appreciate a good old bank failure. So long as the bank failure is not huge, 7, 8, 9, 10% of GDP, then this is a very positive sign for markets. And I think that the, the government is stepping in quickly enough here to contain the risk, to make it small, to ensure that that 1.5% number that it's at right now does not go to 5, 6, 7, 8%. I don't see a pathway there given all the government support we've seen recently. So as a result of all this, I think 2023 plays out like 88, 84, 74, which is this is the crescendo of the bear market panic and the beginning of a new bull market. That's how I see things right now. So that's that's that chart explained in a nutshell. And this whole chart idea, it fits into a broader investment philosophy that you've sort of embraced recently, and that's don't do the obvious and don't do the popular, right? Yes, yeah. So that's, I mean, one of the things that's, when markets get extreme uh, and sentiment gets extreme, both extreme greed and extreme fear, you have to always do what is not obvious and what is not popular because when you're at an extreme greed point, the mainstream media, financial articles, all the, they'll be saying all the same thing, the obvious and the popular. Do this, do this, do this, do this, 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 because that's what kind of what you want to hear because you've been used to it. You're accustomed. You've been off, you know, in 2021, you were just off of you know, two years of record gains, you were feeling great. Like that's what you wanted to hear. They don't get paid to be right. They get paid to get clicks and get media and, and get your attention. So they, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And that's, that's what you want to hear. That's how you feel. On the other side of the coin, when it's extreme fear, like we have in 2023, people are just coming off an awful year in 2022. That The headline indices only dropped about 20%, 30%, 35%. But a lot of people's personal portfolios got crushed 50%, 60%. I mean, it was a bad year for individual stocks. And now here in 2023, they feel like crap. They don't want to hear hopeful messaging. So people sell them a lot of fear. People sell them a lot of uh, angst and um just real negative, pessimistic thoughts about the future. And that's the exact time you want to fade the consensus and, and go bullish. Um, because one of the things that I found interesting is, you know, I, I talk to people that aren't regular market observers and their conceptions of what's going on in the market are, are completely wrong, like entirely incorrect. Oil prices are, are sky high, right? You know, that, that, that that's an idea a lot of people have. A lot of people have Oil and natural gas prices are really high. 
That's been drilled into their head through the media. But the reality is oil has come down from 120 to 65. It hasn't had a sustainable rally in over a year or in about a year. And natural gas has plunged 85% since August and is trading at basically an all-time low level, all-time low level. So people have this conception that oil and natural gas are working and are really high when the reality is here in 2023, they've completely shifted. The narrative has changed dramatically and rapidly. The media is still telling an old story. Energy stocks, a lot of people have it drilled in their head. That's the place to be. Those are the investments that's working. That's where you got to put your money. And so a lot of people did put their money there in late 2022. But guess what? Energy stocks are down big in 2023. Energy stocks have gone nowhere since May of 2022. Nowhere. They're down since then. So like misconception, again, look at stocks. A lot of people feel like stocks are dead. It's another rough year for stocks. No, the S&P 500 is up 5% in 2023. People think, oh, tech stocks are getting crushed. Silicon Valley Bank, that's the epitome of, of, of tech struggles right now. Sure, but at the same time, tech stocks are up 13% this year. Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund is up like 25% this year. So people have these conceptions drilled in their head that are completely wrong. And what's happening in the market is actually the exact opposite. What's happening is people are making investment decisions by driving in the by looking in the rearview mirror. They're driving looking in the rearview mirror. They're making today's investments decisions based on last year's data and sentiment. When this year's data and sentiment is changing dramatically. So you gotta shift with it. The smart money is already making the plays into this reversal trade, as I'm calling it. So that's why I say don't do the obvious, don't do the popular. The obvious and the popular right now is avoid um, avoid the stock market because banks are failing. Avoid the stock market because the Fed's hiking rates, inflation's hot. Um, go into energy stocks because it's a commodity super cycle. Fade all of those consensus beliefs. When you're at extremes, you have to fade the consensus. We're at an extreme. Fade the consensus. 2023 is going to be a year of what I'm calling the great reversal. Every We had an investment regime from 2009 to 2021. That investment regime reversed in 2022. And a lot of people are saying, we're saying 2022 is a reversal point and we're going to have a new investment regime from 22 to 30. But what I'm saying is 2009 to 2021 was one investment regime. We shifted in 2022 because of very unusual factors related to COVID. And now as those factors are abating, reversing, and going away, we're shifting back into 2023 to the investment regime we had 2009 to 2021. So in 23 to 30, we're actually going to look like 09 to 21. That's my belief. And I think that's exactly how things are playing out already in 23. We're already seeing this great, this great reversal, this mean reversion. So I, I think you got to play that reversion. You got to invest in that reversion. And that means buying tech. That means buying growth. That means fading energy. That means buying banks on this, on this collapse. I think banks are a, a great place. Some regional bank stocks look pretty good uh, on the recent crash. I think that means buying housing stocks. Look at the housing data that came in today. Red freaking hot. So I think that's what you got to do. That that's the play in twenty three. I think it's going to be the play for the rest for the uh, not just the rest of the year, but in twenty four and twenty five as well. So you're basically saying be greedy when others are fearful. But what could knock you off your bullishness, Luke? You know you've been a steadfast bull since the June lows. And at what point, if any, do you sort of look at everything and kind of throw in the towel? Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a great question because you have to have you. You can't just be. 
resolute in one beliefs. You have to be able to um, be flexible and adaptable based on the incoming data. So what could knock me off the bull horse? Well, the bull horse, that's kind of funny. <laughs> what could knock you off the bull? The bull horse. Um, yeah, what could knock me off the bull? Well, one, if the Fed does not heed these warning signs and continues to hike not aggressively. I, I think there's a 0% chance to hike aggressively, but they continue to hike at a 25 cadence for the next three, four or five meetings. Um, that, that would knock me off the bull. That would tell me they're, they're just, they're in this to, to kill inflation and nothing else. This is a, uh, whatever it takes fight. And that would mean that financial markets are going to be collateral damage in that fight, significant collateral damage in that fight. So I, that would knock me off my bull thesis. Um, if inflation somehow makes a weird comeback because supply chains start to get get disrupted, China goes back into lockdown, um, the Russia-Ukraine war expands into other parts of Europe, China invades Taiwan, geopolitical risks like that, geopolitical risks that could exacerbate supply chain challenges that have completely faded. If those challenges come back in any meaningful way in 23 because of some black swan geopolitical event, then that would make me much less bullish about the outlook uh, for stocks in 2023 and going into 2024. Um, another thing would be if treasury yields refuse, long-term treasury yields refuse to stop going up. That is, we climb back to 4% on the 10-year, we climb back to 4.5%, 5%. That's going to be related to rate hikes. I think that only happens if the Fed keeps hiking rates. That's related to the first risk. But you have to watch those long-term treasury yields. If they keep going up and up and up and up and up and up and up, and we see 5%, 6% handles on those, then you know that's that's not good for equity markets. That would make me bearish in, in the medium term, short to medium term. So those are things that, that I'm watching for sure. I think that we have to be mindful of those risks, but I think they're appropriately small today that you need to consider them, know they could happen, but not really prepare your portfolio for them. Have a small portion of your portfolio in safety in case that happens as a hedge. But I think you got to be pretty aggressive with your positioning in the opposite of that, in mm -hmm. the growth trade, the, te the tech trade, the risk trade. I think that that is where you want to be because just the bulk of evidence strongly suggests that's where the macro picture is trending right now, the macro narrative. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm convinced. Uh, you've been over the risks and you think that they are appropriately small to start to get really bullish. So where are you putting money to work in 2023? You know, we've talked about self-driving car yeah. stocks. We've talked about enterprise software stocks, clean energy stocks, housing. Mm -hmm. Let's start with those. How are the thing, how are things looking in those specific industries? Well, yeah, let's talk housing real quick because that, that's the one that's front of mind because of the existing home sales report that just came out for February. Boom. I mean, a boom report. Existing home sales are supposed to rise about 5% month over month in February. They rose 15%, three times what they were supposed to. 5% growth, 15% growth. It was a smasher of a report. It was the biggest monthly jump in existing home sales since July of 2020 when we were climbing out of the COVID pandemic, uh, the initial uh, lockdown of the COVID pandemic. So, I mean, it was a huge jump, a huge report. And guess what drove it? Mortgage rates. Well, what I did is I drew a chart and I, I'm showing it to my subscribers today, actually. It, it, it takes the inverse of the 30-year mortgage rate overlays it with existing home sales and then lags existing home sales by three months. And you can see that 
mortgage rates lead existing home sales. When mortgage rates go down, existing home sales go up over the next three months. When mortgage rates go up, existing home sales go down over the next three months. It is a almost perfect correlation. It's, it, it's a gorgeous chart. And Mortgage rates are rolling over. Mortgage rates are going to keep rolling over because the Fed is near the end, the final chapter of this rate hiking cycle. Treasury yields are coming down. Long-term treasury yields are coming down. 30-year mortgage rates are going to come down. So I don't, I don't see interest rate cuts in the future. But what I do see is a stabilization of rates, which means that mortgage stabilization of, of the Fed funds rate, which means that mortgage rates and treasury yields have room to roll over and come down. I think mortgage rates are at worst going to stabilize here and more likely going to fall from here. That is going to spark continued growth in the housing market. There is a ton. This has been my thesis. There has been a ton of pent up demand on the sidelines. People that, you know, my generation, again, we didn't buy homes in the 2010s, but we saved a bunch of money. Then we started getting raises. Then we started getting older and getting married and thinking about families. And then we got a bunch of money during COVID because of our investments and because of stimulus checks and all that stuff. We wanted to get a home. We work from home now. We're hybrid office workers. We want a home, but we can't afford a home with, you know, mortgage rates where they were. So as soon as mortgage rates come down, as soon as mortgage rates stabilize, as soon as you realize this is our opportunity, you're going to energize all of this sideline demand, and it is going to come flooding back into the market like crazy. I mean, you have to ask yourself this. 12 months ago, uh, 12 months ago, 20 months ago, there were absurd bidding wars on every home absurd you would get 10 to 15 bidders for every home and people would go up and up and up and up and up and up and cut throw cut throw cut throw. so these people really wanted those homes <laughs> only one got it where are the other 14 did they suddenly just not want a home did they sure some of them went on and bid for other homes and won those homes but for every home if there were 15 bidders there were 14 that didn't get it where are those people they're on the sidelines. They're waiting. And as soon as their opportunity comes, they are going to strike. That opportunity is when mortgage rates stop spiking and then even more start to fall. You're going to energize those 14 bidders that didn't get the home and they are going to go crazy. So 2023, I think, is going to be a huge bounce back year for the housing market. And I really like housing and housing-related stocks for 2023. The most rate-sensitive part of the economy got hit the hardest in 22, will rebound the strongest in 23 as the Fed shifts course. So I love the housing stocks. I love the reports I'm seeing there. I love the data that's incoming. The, the Home home Builders Index, which is a leading indicator of existing home sales, continues to rebound very, very, very strongly. So I love what I'm seeing over there. And I think there's the dynamics are in place for the housing market to sustain very... The housing stocks have been on fire for the record. And I think they sustain that strength for the rest of the year. Love what I'm seeing there. So love the housing, housing stock sector. Clean energy... Been on a little bit of a downtrend. I think it's time to buy the dip and get pretty aggressive on clean energy stocks. The reason is that one, Biden um, okayed that oil project up in Alaska, mm -hmm. which was kind of like a concession, right? It was a concession from the White House. The White House has been pushing this very clean energy agenda, but then they okayed this oil project, which is like, wait, what? You, you did what? And they did that because, you know, we do need oil and gas for the foreseeable future. And so they need to make some adjustments. I think those adjustments have people freaking out that, oh my gosh, the government support for clean energy is not as strong as, as we thought it was. No, 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 no. The government support for clean energy is as strong as ever. It's just they finally came to the realization that 
clean energy can't do it all itself. It needs a little bit of help from oil and gas. So they're giving it the help that it needs. If anything, I think, okay, that oil project in Alaska actually will help the clean energy transition because it'll simply help the entire energy industry. So I think that those fears are overblown. Then there were some fears related to access to funding for clean energy startups in, in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. The Silicon Valley Bank essentially bankrolled a lot of uh, clean energy funding. And I don't think that that's a big risk given all the uh, government support that's coming in here and Silicon Valley Bank, there's been a massive bidding war for its assets. And apparently that bidding war has attracted a lot of demand. So the, the Fed has kind of extended the window for that bidding war. So whatever ends up happening over there, the assets and the operating features of Silicon Valley Bank will continue to thrive for the foreseeable future. And that will allow um, clean funding startups to get access to capital and allow that industry to continue to, to thrive. So I think that the sell-off in clean energy stocks recently is actually a really, really, really good buying opportunity. And I've been buying the dip in solar energy storage stocks. Fluence has taken a big hit recently. Uh, it's come down in some really oversold levels, some really strong technical support levels. I think it has a big bounce here. I, I like that name here. So I think I, I'm, I'm bullish on that sector. Um, you asked about self-driving stocks. I really like self-driving stocks in 2023. There's been a lot of movement there. So yesterday, Baidu just got a uh, permit to roll out its fully uh, full self-driving robo-taxi service in Beijing. That'll be the third city in which Baidu's, their program's called Apollo Go, in which their self-driving program now has a robo-taxi service in China. So that's 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 big news. That's big time. Cruise is rolling out autonomous vehicles and testing them on roads throughout California now too. So that's also big time. Remember Motional and Uber doing their thing in Las Vegas. We're getting a lot of delivery services in LA and uh, in, in Texas, California and Texas, you know, that, that are rolling out quickly. Luminar just strike that big deal with Mercedes-Benz. Innovis has that big deal with uh, Volkswagen. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot of good momentum here. As costs come down, that's the biggest hurdle in self-driving right now is not exactly technology. I think the technology is pretty much there or very close to there. It's the cost to integrate high quality tech into cars that, you know, run for $20,000, $30,000, $40,000, $50,000. So you got to get those LiDAR sensors below a thousand you gotta get a lot of that hardware down to the hundreds you gotta get that software cheap so you gotta make sure this whole package is not you know twenty thousand dollars but rather three four five thousand dollars and they're getting to that point the disinflation that we're seeing here in 2023 will help them get to that point so uh metal costs a lot of input costs for these these guys for these self-driving companies are coming down significantly so that should really help the industry in 2023 i like those stocks 2023 and then what was the final one you asked about you said self-driving clean energy housing software stocks enterprise software yeah i like the enterprise software narrative because i think that what a lot of the, to me there, there's two types of enterprise software there's revenue boosting enterprise software and cost cutting enterprise software i like the latter i like cost cutting enterprise software because companies right now what we're seeing the theme that we're seeing in earnings is that companies aren't like killing their spending altogether because the economy is still moving and consumers are still spending but they are cautious so when the economy is not collapsing but not thriving, you shoot down the fairway. What does that mean in terms of enterprise software budgets? What that means is I'm going to spend money on things that are going to help me get more efficient, lean me up, allow me to continue to operate my business under an uncertain macroeconomic environment. 
and that's cost-cutting software. So I like cost-efficient software. I think that's a software that's seeing really good demand. My read on earnings is that companies that offer cost-cutting software are seeing continued strong demand, if not accelerating demand, while companies that provide revenue-boosting software are seeing demand taper off. Their retention rates are going down. Customer growth is, is trending lower. So I like the cost-cutting side of the enterprise software stack. I think those stocks are really attractive here because across the board, enterprise software stocks are about as cheap as they've ever been. So I like that backdrop. And then especially in that backdrop, I like the cost cutting ones. I think that that's a really good play for 2023. All right. Uh, you mentioned this a little earlier, but I want to dive into this too. What about the regional bank stocks? Uh, we talked about how there's a lot of money in fading the consensus. So what are you thinking about the regional bank stocks these days? Are you buying them? And if so, do you have any favorites? Yeah, I, I I just started my research into the regional bank stocks because I finally feel like the coast is not clear, but like I clear enough to where if you want to take some risks, now is a good time to start taking some risks. Um, and I looked at a couple of them and I like what I'm seeing that a lot of these banks. So really what caused the big collapse at Silicon Valley Bank is that deposits were dwindling. Right. They were dwindling and dwindling and dwindling and dwindling and dwindling from their peak before the collapse deposits on their last quarter report. So who knows where they are now? But on the last quarter report, they were down about 13, 14 percent from their peak. So they had a 13 to 14 percent drawdown in deposits. And that's what forced them into selling their bond portfolio to huge loss and causing this whole fiasco that unraveled uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So it was that deposit decline. But a lot of these banks are seeing if not still positive deposit growth, some are seeing deposits still still rise, then very small minor declines in, in deposit volume. So one, two, three percent declines. That's not big enough to, to force a company to or a bank to sell its bond portfolio. Um, so I think a lot of these banks are in much better situations or positions than and Silicon Valley Bank was. And I don't see them getting into positions where the Silicon Valley Bank type bank run could happen because one, they're more diversified. We've talked about why SVB collapsed because they had so much exposure to a very rate sensitive part of the economy. A lot of these other regionals are much more diversified. So that protects them. And then two, the Fed's here saying they're going to deposit. They may deposit. When Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen comes out and says we may back up all um, deposits above 250K, then she kind of has to if something <laughs> were to happen, right? She can't say, I may, I may get, your, get your back on your money if you lose it. And then if you lose it and she says, ah, you know what? I'm actually not going to do that. that <laughs> the government can't do that. <laughs> the government says we got your back. They got your back. Hmm. So I think that that sense of safety and security – will allow these banks to not have bank runs in the way Silicon Valley Bank did. I don't think First Republic's going to have that. I don't think um, a lot of these other regionals are going to have that. Uh, Charles Schwab, I don't think these, these, these bank stocks are, are going to have – these banks are going to have uh, those types of runs that's going to cause their collapses. So I think that's good. And then when you look at the valuations on regional bank stocks, a lot of the ones that I'm looking at, uh, 0.3 times book value, 0.4 times book value. One I looked at yesterday, 3.7 times trailing earnings. You know, these are these are cheap, 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 cheap stocks. So the one I looked at yesterday, for example, 0.3 times book, 3.7 times earning. Average earnings valuation uh, is about 10 times average books above one. So just mean reversion on those multiples mean it's it's a 3.5 times winner there. So you know. I like that. I like those prospects. I like those prospects quite a bit. 
Um, and so from that perspective, I do think that um, regional bank stocks are attractive here, but not all of them. Hmm. That Some regional banks probably will go under, more probably will go under, but the high quality ones will survive. So what am I looking for when I'm, when I'm looking at regional bank stocks here? Well, one, I, I want to see deposits healthy. I, I either want – I want to see less – then a 10% drawdown in deposits, ideally less than a 5% drawdown in deposits, and in a perfect world, um, positive deposit growth. So that's the first checkbox I'm looking for. The second one is I, I want to see valuation multiples whacked. I want to see below 0.5 times book, preferably below 0.3 times book. I want to see single-digit PE, preferably below 5 times PE. I, I like those valuation setups. And then I want to see insiders buying. I want to see the CEO stepping in and buying shares. I want to see the COO stepping in and buying shares. I want to see the chairman of the board stepping in and buying shares. I want to see other board members stepping in and buying shares. If you have good deposit growth, you have um, – uh, very cheap valuation and you have insiders buying, you probably got a, a decent candidate for a regional bank stock bounce back with 100%, 200% returns over the next few months. That's how I see the setup there. I'm getting constructively optimistic on them, getting pretty bullish on them. And I think that there's good money to be had there. But again, not for your lunch money. It's very risky. These are high risk, high reward trades. But I do see potential for some pretty big bounce backs in the high quality regional bank stocks over the next three to six months. Okay. Uh, also, uh, we mentioned earlier, big tech stocks. They've been super hot recently. Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, mm -hmm. NVIDIA, Apple. The fallen titans are making a comeback. Are these trades they worth are. chasing in 2023? Yeah, big tech's become the new safety trade because you simultaneously get to play the fall in interest rates, the fall in yields, because that helps tech stocks. But you also get to find safety in a turbulent economy because – we're all still using Facebook. <laughs> We're all still using Instagram. We're all still watching Netflix. We're all still shopping on Amazon. You know, like so, you get to, you get to play the the resilience of the economy or find safety in in, in the um, turbulent macroeconomic backdrop. So they become the new safety trade, big tech, and I, I think they have more runway. Big tech stocks got pretty undervalued. Apple didn't, but outside of Apple, a lot of them got pretty undervalued. Alphabet, Nvidia, um, even Tesla got undervalued when it fell down to a hundred. Uh, Meta got way undervalued, and I think there's a lot of room for them to continue to run both through. Um, above average revenue growth and um, and multiple expansion, P multiple expansion. Another big thing there, so you saw Amazon with another 9,000 layoffs yesterday. Uh, the cost-cutting measures of this company are, are significant. These companies were overstaffed. They overhired during the pandemic. They had far too many people. They needed to cut. Now they are cutting. And because they had too many people to start with, this cutting is not going to really compromise revenue growth. I think they're just – they're cutting fat – that they didn't really need. It was nice to have, but they didn't for a cushion, but they didn't really need it to drive revenue growth. So they're cutting all that excess fat, which to me means that revenue growth is not going to be that impacted. So if you look at a company like Amazon, I think their revenue growth is going to remain very strong in 2023, but their profit margins are now going to expand meaningfully. And profit margins lead tech stocks. If you look at a chart of the NASDAQ 100 profit margins with its price, NASDAQ 100 price versus NASDAQ 100 profit margins, profit margins lead stock prices by about six to 12 months. So I see profit margins, they've been falling for a while. I see them stabilizing and rebounding in 2023, driven by two things. One, all these labor expense cost cuts. I think that's going to be a huge cost saver for all these big tech firms. And then two, 
lower input costs. Inflation's coming down. If your input costs are coming down and you're firing people, you're going to be saving a lot of expenses. Your OPEX is going to be much lower. Your OPEX base is going to be much lower. Your OPEX rates can be much lower. So your op margins are going to be much higher. So I really like the story at Big Tech for one, safety trade, two, P multiple expansion back to mean back to the their means, their averages over the past five years. And then three, above average earnings growth driven by better than expected profit margin expansion in 2023 because of all these cost cuts. So I do like Big Tech quite a and I particularly like Meta. I, I like Facebook a lot. I think Facebook, that ecosystem is going to be a huge winner over the next six to 12 months because of TikTok scrutiny. Hmm. And TikTok is, uh, I mean, there's talks about it getting banned. It looks like it's probably only a matter of time before it gets banned. Whether or not it does get banned, everyone's talking about the ban. So now hmm. people are questioning whether or not they should even be using the app. If my government's thinking about banning it entirely, maybe I shouldn't even be using it. I'm noticing a lot of outflow of talent on TikTok and users on TikTok to other platforms. And Snapchat is winning some of that, but you know where the bulk of it is going? Instagram and even Facebook Reels. Because mm. Instagram, you know, they, they kind of combine. Facebook populates yeah. a lot of their Reels or their their short clips with with Instagram stuff yesterday. So I'm, I'm a big TikTok user. I mean, that you know that about me. I've yeah. been a TikTok user mm -hmm. for a while. Yesterday, I went down the rabbit hole of the Facebook uh, reel, the Facebook shorts or whatever. I was on my Facebook app on my phone. And I, I was sitting here scrolling for 10 minutes just watching video after video after video on Facebook. I haven't done that in – 17 years i mean when i was in sixth grade I, like it's been forever since i just sat on facebook mm. and just scrolled through content that i was actually enjoying not looking up somebody's birthday or like trying to find an event <laughs> that I was, I was invited to no actually scrolling and just enjoying the content and then i would get a relevant ad every once in a while and you know i, I found a really cool wallet thing and a really cool t-shirt thing and it's like the ad targeting was working. I think mm -hmm. Facebook is reinventing that platform to be much more relevant and much stronger and much stickier engagement. And Instagram, I don't have Instagram. I've noticed my wife is, is shifting some engagement from, from TikTok to Instagram and a lot of her friends are too as well. So I, I just think that that Facebook ecosystem is ready for a big boost over the next um, several months um, from, from a user usage perspective. And at the same time, they're getting that big bump while they're firing a bunch of people and cutting a bunch of costs. So mm. Meta to me is a company in 2023 that's going to get much better than expected revenue growth and significant profit margin expansion. This was a company that was operating at 45% operating margins before all of its recent issues. Now it's a 20% operating margin company. There's a lot of room to re-expand there. So I, I really like Meta and I think Netflix looks really good too. I think that their advertising uh, platform is going to be very strong. So I expect a very strong offering from them in 2023. But yeah, I just like the, I like the big tech stories here. I think the big tech stocks are, are having their, as you said, the fall on Titans making a comeback. And I think that's going to continue <laughs> to accelerate for the rest of the year. All right. And lastly, we haven't talked about crypto on this podcast in a long time. Okay. But I know you run a crypto model portfolio still, and I also know that you were super bullish on cryptos coming into 2023. They're up a lot this year, and somebody told me that you just went on your first crypto model buying spree in over a year. So talk to us a little about what's going on in the crypto market and yeah. uh, the thesis that supports these buys. Right. Yeah, sure. So yeah, we were very bullish on cryptos going into 2023. We've been calling it the the boom cycle, the boom cycle, 2023 boom cycle, cryptos boom cycle. Uh, and the reason was, I mean, it, it, for us, we think the best way to look at cryptos is just first for a moment, forget all of the, the blockchain, forget the tech, forget the uh, real world implications of it, just for a moment. 
and think of cryptos as a risk asset. Think of them as a major stock in the QQQ. Think of them as a Tesla or as a uh, Microsoft or as an NVIDIA because that's how it's traded. It's trading behavior is very similar to that of a big tech stock. I just told you we were really big on big tech stocks. So we were really big on crypto too because we thought that crypto was going to be a high beta leveraged way to play a tech growth risk rebound in 2023 with the premise being inflation is going to collapse. The Fed's going to shift Davis. The trends we saw in 2022 are going to be in reverse course of 2023 and cryptos are going to boom. And that, that has happened, right? Bitcoin's gone from 16 to 28. A lot of alts are up 50, 60, 70, 80, 100%, 200%, 300% in 2023 alone. And we think that cycle is just going to continue. So I think the bull thesis on cryptos makes a lot of sense. Look, at it as a risk asset you want to buy it when markets go from risk off to risk on and you want to sell it when markets go from risk on to risk off right now we're going from risk off to risk on if powell gives us the green light then it's going to be full steam ahead in the risk on trading cryptos are going to go crazy so we've liked the gains we've had so far but yes we've been doing some buying because we do think the outlook is even brighter and we think that crypto our target for bitcoin in 2023 you know normally what happens in in a crypto boom bust cycle because that's what cryptos do right it's just boom bust boom bust boom bust boom bust over and over and over again so normally what happens is after a big bust the the timing is perfect this is what happens you you get a bust and then cryptos tend to bottom about we'll talk about Bitcoin specifically. Bitcoin tends to bottom about 12 months, 12 to 18 months before a happening date, before a happening event. And then over those 12 to 18 months, Bitcoin tends to retrace about 38 to 50% of its losses in the recent bust cycle. And then after the halving event, it tends to soar to new highs. That's what it does every single time. This is just the pattern of Bitcoin. It booms and then it busts, drops about 80%. Then after it drops 80%, it bottoms right about 12 to 18 months before a halving event. Then it retakes about 38 to 50% of its previous peak of its losses in that bust cycle into the halving event. Then after the halving event, it, go on, it goes on to make new highs. That is what Bitcoin does. So that's exactly what it's doing right now. The pattern's repeating. We bottomed about 80% off the highs. We bottomed about 14 months, 15 months before the next halving cycle. The next halving cycle or halving event is in spring 2024. So what are we going to do? Well, I think here in 2023, we're going to retake 38 to 50% of, of the recent uh, bus cycles losses. So that gets us to about $45,000, $40,000 on Bitcoin um, in 2023 or in, into early 2024. And then I think after that halving event, boom, it hits. We get that supply cut. And then I think, you boom, you go up to probably 100000 So that's where I see Bitcoin right now. I see it going to 35, 40, 45 in 2023. And then I see it popping to 100. 2024 by the end of 2024 and in 2025 so i'm very constructive i mean that that's a 4x gain basically from where we currently are i think it's it's risk on time with cryptos we, we, we got risk on earlier in the year we were, we were very bullish on this um on this boom cycle happening and i think it does continue and accelerates over the next few months again i'm not making a claim right now i do believe there is a lot of fundamental value to blockchain and web3 and stuff like that but that that's not the bull thesis mm. forget that stuff the bull thesis is risk asset. This is the risk asset of risk assets of risk assets. It's the king of risk assets. <laughs> 
And I'm telling you, risk assets are going to make a massive comeback because of macroeconomic factors. So I think the king of risk assets is going to make a king-like comeback uh, as all risk assets do bounce back over the next 12, 24 months. So that, that's my outlook on cryptos, and I am, I am bullish on them still. All right. Uh, well, that covers all of our topics, but we do have a few fan questions this week, starting with at Senga Das, uh, your latest thoughts on Rivian. Yeah, so the EV sector is clearly under some pressure right now. There's no doubt about that. But I'm I'm not in Rivian for the short term. I, mm. I, I like Rivian long term. So when I talk about the EV sector, the EV sector is going to shake out like the auto sector when the gas-powered car came came around. Early 1900s, gas-powered car comes around. There's hundreds of companies out there saying they're going to change the world with the best gas-powered car. By the 1930s, there are only five or six left. Today, there's only three left, right? So massive consolidation around the, the chosen few. The chosen few were great investments. The rest were terrible investments. So the EV sector, hundreds of companies are saying they're going to make the best EV ever. It's going to get dwindled down to five or six. Maybe you know, in 10, 20 years, there's going to be three or four left, and that's it. Those are the chosen few. Today, we got to pick the chosen few. How am I selecting the chosen few well, i'm selecting the chosen few based on talent and resources and i think that rivian checks off both boxes tremendously well they have a very very good team a very very talented team very talented leaders very talented engineering team and they got a bunch of resources because they got amazon's backing they're amazon's ev course amazon's not gonna let them go under amazon's gonna support them to forever basically mm -hmm. so uh i like rivian long term yes the stocks are under pressure all ev stocks are under pressure because ev demand is dwindling a little bit but i do think as interest rates kind of plateau maybe even come down consumer finance is going to get better auto demand is going to come back in 2023 i think ev is going to have a big bounce back i think rivian has appropriately reset their production targets to levels that are now very beatable if they do beat those targets in 2023 the stock has upside and i think long term you know based on just the valuation metrics i think the stock has a lot of upside from 12 13 14 15 dollars level i think this is definitely a hundred two hundred dollar stock one day so i would be i would be a buyer of rivian stock at current levels i do like them and i like them more than lucid right now i think rivian rivian and fisker are probably my two favorite ev stocks at the current moment hmm. uh next question from steve in the mountains do you think sofi's lawsuit brought against the biden administration will hurt sofi or do you think this issue will fade and eventually disappear over time yeah the latter the latter i mean this to me the student loan thing was such a big deal. And then the company just kept growing with, you know, through all that chaos. And it tells me that, okay, this was a student loan refinancing business. Operative word being was. People are flocking to SoFi not for student loan refi anymore. That's why they got there in the first place, maybe two or three years ago. But today they're going to it because it's just this all in one money app get your money right right that's their that's their slogan i think their advertising is working their marketing is working i think people are going into the platform for reasons outside of student loan refi and they're sticking with it for reasons outside of student loan refi that's what the numbers clearly show us this is a company that is seeing customers grow like crazy members grow like crazy they call them members they're seeing deposits grow like crazy they're seeing revenues grow like crazy and they're seeing huge even the margin expansion and this is one of those bank stocks it's kind of a bank stock right it's a fintech but it's kind of a bank stock too that has seen aggressive insider buying ever since the the uh, financial contagion emerged in early march so I love SoFi stock here. I mean, we, we've saying under five, it's an absolute steal. In five to six, it's still a great steal. In six to seven, it's still a great steal. In seven to eight, it's still a great steal. In eight to nine, I think in single digits, the stock is fantastic. 
because I think the stock is worth at least 20, 25 bucks today. And in the long term, if they continue to grow at the rate that I think they can grow, and they do become the size of regional bank, which I think is exactly where they're trending for, especially in the wake of the recent regional bank failures, people are going to be looking for alternative options. I think SoFi is the option that wins there. Then I think this is a bank with 20, 25, 30 million members, stock that could be a $150 stock one day. And I think that's where it's going. So I would be a very, I love SoFi stock here. And so do the insiders. They keep loading up, load up with them. They're, they're playing the long game. If you got time on your side, play the long game with the insiders. All right. Uh, well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors. As always, Luke, any last words before we wrap today? Um, buckle your seatbelts, folks. Get your, uh, your hard hat on. <laughs> Um, make sure that seatbelt's extra tight because it's going to be a wild roller coaster ride over the next few days. Um, even if stocks don't react positively initially to Powell's comments, I do think that you know, depending on what he says, we'll we'll be dissecting it on our end and analyzing on our end. But it's going to be very hard for them to keep hiking rates with the way inflation is coming down aggressively. And I think the the round of March inflation reports that we're going to get in April are going to be just so low, so soft. Like inflation is going to crash. That round of reports will definitely get them to say something a lot more dovish in their May meeting. So um, I think regardless of what how you know Wednesday goes down and, and what Powell says and how the market reacts, the trend is disinflation. The trend is should be a shift in Fed policy. And we will get that eventually. So I think that you know stocks really have been stuck in neutral for a little, 10 months. We are the SP 500 is exactly where it was in May of 2022. So May of 2022, March 2023, you know, that's 10 months of flatness. The market and guess what? Inflation peaked in June. So a month after that, May. So, you know, ever since inflation peaked, stocks have just been kind of stuck in neutral. We've had rallies and we've had uh, sell-offs and rallies and sell-offs. But net-net, we've been stuck in neutral ever since inflation peaked. So I think these markets are just kind of in this waiting zone, this waiting period for the Fed to finally shift, right? You need inflation to fall and the Fed to shift, and that's when the bull spirits come out. That's when the market goes crazy. Once inflation came down, we went into neutral, and now we're waiting. All right, Fed. All right, Fed, give us the green light. Come on, Powell. And I think eventually and inevitably he well and has to do that because, yes, inflation is, is collapsing dramatically. And he got a huge assist from the banking crisis. I mean, it sounds weird to call that an assist, but that's kind of what it was in the fight against inflation. Because if you weren't convinced inflation is going to crash, then now you definitely are. Hmm. Inflation cannot sustain itself when banks are failing. Um, but we, we saw that no way. Inflation cannot sustain itself. That was so bad that we didn't have inflation for 15 years. So um, – <laughs> Yes, I think that there is um, there is a high probability that the Fed does shift dovish and then we go from neutral to full steam ahead and stocks rally like crazy. So that's those are my final words. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and always to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye, all. <laughs>